Welcome to the Center for Domestic Studies Colloquium Series Podcast. Each episode of our Colloquium Series Podcast features a member of the Center or visiting scholar presenting a philosophical paper on a subject of their research. In this episode, we will hear Sister Albert Marie Sermansky, a visiting assistant professor at the University of St. Thomas School of Theology, giving a talk entitled Hunger and Thirst, Suffering for Christ in Saints Catherine of Siena and Teresa of Calcutta. And without further ado, our podcast. So some of you might be kind of wondering what this title, wait, that's a theological title and I don't hear the name Aquinas in it. Did they invite her just because she dresses like Aquinas? You know, are we kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel here? Um, but this paper is a piece of theological work I did where I drew on Aquinas' Christology in order to resolve some of the differences I saw between Catherine of Siena and Mother Teresa. So it'll take a little bit, a little while to get to Aquinas, but he's absolutely key to resolving and answering this argument. It is more of a theological paper than a philosophical paper, but philosophy and theology intertwine in Aquinas, and, and studying one is valuable and requires an awareness at least somewhat of the other. Okay, so to begin. Suffering with Christ in Catherine of Siena and St. Teresa of Calcutta. St. Catherine of Siena and Teresa of Calcutta were both women mystics who had a great desire to cooperate with Christ for the salvation of others. St. Catherine talks about her hunger for souls, while Teresa spoke of satisfying the thirst of Christ. As these women grew in union with Christ, both came to see the suffering in their lives as a sharing in Christ's sufferings. Now, despite these similarities, the spiritual experiences of Catherine and Teresa are profoundly different. Um, since they're from different countries and different centuries, you would expect to find some differences in their experience, but what's theologically significant is that their differences deepen the closer they grow, grow to the same crucified God. As Catherine matures spiritually, she says her suffering comes to flow directly out of a contemplative vision of the world, thus from the light of knowledge rather than from darkness. In contrast, and you're probably familiar with this, Mother Teresa's famous now for enduring a prolonged dark night until the end of her life. Both identified their particular way of suffering with the experience of Christ on the cross, seeing their suffering as a mirroring and a participation in his. So the differing experiences of these two women raise questions about mystical experience and its relationship to Christology. Does mystical experience, particularly that of the dark night, follow a characteristic path? To what extent is this path a deepening identification with Christ? If so, should we speak about Christ's experience on the cross as one of clear knowledge of his divinity of the Father or of darkness of total abandonment? Now, Catherine of Siena is a doctor of the church in her own right with a precise teaching on the path of spiritual growth. In general, her theology is compatible with that of St. John of the Cross, who in turn had studied St. Thomas Aquinas carefully. But Catherine emphasizes a little bit more God's freedom in shaping his relationship with every soul. Although Teresa of Calcutta's experience is a significant variation on the path that Catherine describes, 
Several principles from Catherine's theology off suggest points of reconciliation. Then, with the help of Aquinas' Christology, it can be shown that both women share in different aspects of Christ's suffering in accord with their differing missions. So I'm going to go through and talk about Catherine of Siena, Teresa of Avila, points of just similarity and reconciliation within them, and then how Aquinas' Christology can ground a more full understanding of, of how we reconcile what they experience and say about the spiritual life. All right, so Catherine of Siena. Catherine of Siena, a 14th century Dominican tertiary, possessed a passionate and energetic nature. She was a Dominican through and through who spoke and lived the primacy of wisdom over will. One of Catherine's most characteristic statements found in the first paragraph of her dialogue, her large famous work of theology is, upon knowledge follows love. She experienced her deepest suffering and joy as flowing from a mystical knowledge of God. Just a little bit of Catherine's background. Catherine dedicated her life to Christ around the age of seven after receiving a vision of Christ. At the age of 16, having refused offers of marriage, she received the habit of the Third Order Dominican Sisters of Penance. This meant that she became a member of the Dominican family, but did not take public vows or live a strict community life. Catherine spent the next three years of her life in intense prayer and penance, rarely leaving her room in her parents' house except to attend Mass. During this time, she experienced periods of extraordinary closeness to Christ, as well as periods of spiritual dryness and temptation. This time in Catherine's life culminated in a mystical betrothal in which Christ gave her a ring that remained visible to her throughout her entire life, although it was invisible to everyone else. Blessed Raymond of Capua, who is Catherine's spiritual director and her biographer, reports that when Christ gave Catherine the ring, he exhorted her to faith, and promised her strength to overcome her enemies. The presence and significance of this ring precluded any further experience of spiritual darkness for Catherine. As a miraculous token of God's loving support, it signified and ensured that she would never be without some tangible experience of God. It soon became clear that Christ had given Catherine this token as a promise to support her in her mission to the world. Catherine was sent to bring God's love and wisdom first to her family, then to Siena, Italy, and eventually, famously, to the papal court in France. Catherine experienced spiritual darkness or dryness early on in her life during those three years of solitude. She was actively seeking purification by acts of penance during this time, some of them very dramatic and extreme, and it seems as though God assisted her with the purification of spiritual darkness. Raymond recounts one period of spiritual dryness in which Catherine experienced assaults by demons. Her chief temptations were lustful thoughts, the idea that her way of life was meaningless, and the feeling of being abandoned by God. The apparent abandonment by Christ was the bitterest part of her suffering. Catherine's first conversation with Christ afterwards is a famous exchange. Lord, where were you when my heart was disturbed by all those temptations? To which he replied, I was in your heart. While this is the only instance of spiritual darkness during this period of Catherine's life recorded by Raymond, it was likely not the only one. 
From, the time of, from this time until her spiritual betrothal, Raymond notes that Catherine's soul increased in grace daily without describing the precise means used to attain this increase. Now, according to John of the Cross, there are typically two periods of spiritual darkness that serve to purify the soul of imperfections, the first being the night of the senses and the second the night of faith. These punctuate the three spiritual stages of purgation, illumination, and union, serving as transitional experiences between the stages. John connects both nights to the infused contemplation of God. God is present to the soul in a way beyond its capacity to grasp, thus causing a sort of darkness. As the one being purified grows in love of God, her capacity to perceive God's presence increases, ending the darkness. For John of the Cross, the first night, the night of the senses, begins the experience of infused contemplation. It orders and purifies the soul, subjecting the senses and sense inclinations to this human spirit, showing the emptiness of earthly things and the inadequacy of human concepts and emotions to express God opening the soul to the loving but obscure contemplation of God. An awareness of his presence through the activation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, especially wisdom. The second night for John of the Cross, the night of the Spirit, is a deeper darkness, showing the soul the infinite distance between her and God, which brings about an incredible sense of unworthiness, which helps to purify remaining disordered desires. The desires ordered at this time are not those of the physical appetites, but those of the will, the inordinate desire for praise or notice, for other people to ask one's advice on spiritual matters, etc. Now Catherine's experience, just th this one experience that described, that's described by Raymond, includes characteristics of both of the knights as described by John of the Cross. The temptation to lustful thoughts belongs to the night of the senses in the way John of the Cross describes it. Um, yet, by the time Catherine had entered into this solitary life of prayer, she was already experiencing intimacy with Christ in prayer, as well as many of the mystical phenomena sometimes associated with the illuminative stage of the spiritual life, which comes usually after this first initial night of the senses. In addition, her experience of abandonment and meaninglessness which can only be met by the response of faith, is more typical of the dark night of the soul. So putting together John's more systematic account and Catherine's experience, we could say Catherine either experienced an unusually intense purgation combining both nights, or Raymond is conflating the two for didactic purposes. Okay, now let's look at Catherine's teaching here. So Catherine's teaching on spiritual development is found in its most mature form in her dialogue. This work was most likely dictated between 1377 and 1378. That's two years before her death in 1380. So it's her, her most mature theology is found here. In this work, Catherine describes the stages of the spiritual life according to that threefold schema of purgative, illuminative, and unitive ways. Although she prefers to speak of them as three stairs or steps that the Christian must climb on the bridge of Christ's cross in order to reach heaven. So in Catherine's imagery, the Christian climbs along the body of Christ, first reaching his feet as a servant, then reaching his side as a friend, 
at finally reaching his face or mouth as a true child of God. She says, in the first stage, the desire is stripped of selfish love, that sort of purgation of serious sin. In the second, God gives enlightenment to, uh, to the mind, that growth in virtue. And in the third stage, the soul drinks living water in the sea of peace, that, that deep union of will. The first stage is that of putting off habits of sin, the second of growing in virtue under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the third of the union of the will with God. Sometimes Catherine expands her schema to include a preliminary stage of just living in serious sin before someone even gets on the bridge, or just kind of running around on the, the side of sin. And then sometimes she extends the third stage into a fourth one of even deeper union. But the, that basic three is sort of the heart of her schema. Placing the experience of spiritual darkness within the first and second stages, Catherine doesn't often actually use the language of darkness that's more famous in John of the Cross, but she prefers to speak of the withdrawal, withdrawal of the experience of God's presence. But her description of this withdrawal fits with John of the Cross's night. So the withdrawal is an intense experience. It's painful enough she compares it to being in hell. In the transition between the first two stages, the love of a servant and the love of a friend, she says that the soul needs to recognize its own imperfection when it loves consolations or emotional experiences in prayer more than God. There's that turning aside from the imperfect towards God. She writes in the voice of God the Father, she says, to lift them out of their imperfections, I take back my spiritual comfort and let them experience struggles and vexations. To those who remain steadfast in this trial, the experience of infused contemplation is given, described by Catherine as God showing himself to the soul through insight into his action in the world, experience of his presence, and growth in virtue. Catherine describes darkness in the second spiritual stage as having the purpose of deepening knowledge and virtue in the soul. She uses similar language here, talking about it again as a withdrawal of Christ of God's presence, the withdrawal of the experience of God's presence. The main difference now is that the soul doesn't need to be weaned from excessive emotional attachment to like consolations, but from a certain pride that would make the person want to control and dictate how she would encounter God. God withdraws from the soul in feeling, but not in grace. The soul further recognizes her weakness, grows in humility, self-knowledge, and faith. Darkness in this stage for Catherine is intermittent, a part of a series of experiences in which the person comes to know and trust God more fully. Catherine says that coming through these periods gives the soul the ability to experience divine providence when it's over, God returns to the soul with greater light and knowledge. Catherine overall emphasizes growth in virtue more than purification. The spirit of her trust in God's loving education of the soul is captured when she calls this period of the spiritual life a lover's game in which God gently educates the soul in love. Okay. Now what we want to focus on here, how she talks about suffering in this third stage. So for Catherine, those who've reached the third or highest stage of the spiritual life have attained a certain fullness of knowledge. She says the soul has come to know herself 
and in herself she has come to know God's affectionate charity. So the suffering in this final stage will come from knowledge and not from darkness. So again, in the voice of God, she says, To such as these it is granted to never feel my absence. I told you how I go away from others in feeling, but not in grace, and then return. I do not do this with these most perfect ones. No, I am always at rest in their soul, both by grace and by feeling. So the souls at this stage no longer need the withdrawal of an awareness of God's presence in order to purify them. Nevertheless, they're still in this life, and we know from Aquinas, charity can always increase because it never attains to the um, infinity of God. So they can still grow in love and they still suffer. Catherine says, there's no one in this life, no matter how perfect, who cannot grow to greater perfection. This is a stage of great apostolic effectiveness. The soul who has reached the mouth of holy desire prays inwardly, speaks the truth outwardly, and experiences a great desire for the salvation of souls. Catherine describes these as conformed to Christ, crucified, both in his desire and in his suffering. With Christ, they are willing to endure pain as well as ill treatment from others. The most characteristic type of suffering at this stage for Catherine comes from knowledge of God and knowledge of the sin by which others offend God. Catherine speaks over and over again of this. She is not an organized writer. She's circular. She goes back to earlier points. She throws in tangents. In, in style and organization, she's about as far from Aquinas as you can get. So she, she keeps coming back to this. She calls it an anguished love, a stinging hunger, a crucifying sorrow at the offense done to God and the harm done to neighbors. It is the depth of the knowledge of God that is the source of this pain. Catherine writes, In their loving union with God, they've contemplated and known how much God loves his creatures, seeing how they reflect God's likeness, and have fallen in love with the creature's beauty for love of God. Therefore, they feel unbearable sorrow when they see others straying from God's goodness. This suffering is so great, it makes every other suffering diminish for them. So again, the insight into God's greatness and into the horror of sin causes the greatness possible suffering. Catherine's dialogue bears witness to this desire, not only in her telling about it, but even in the way that she speaks. Um, in the dialogue, she describes herself the protagonist in terms of suffering love. That her dialogue begins with the words, a soul rises up, restless with tremendous desire for God's honor and the salvation of souls. The whole structure of Catherine's dialogue is based around four petitions that she makes. They're for herself, for the reform of the church, a huge need at her time period, as well as at others, for the whole world, and for divine providence. So her, her desire actually begins, impels her to write and frames the work that she writes. Now, the positive aspects of loving knowledge that Catherine attributes to the soul in the third stage in a really interesting way parallels the love with which she describes God the Father and his creation and intention to redeem the world. So describing God the Father, Catherine writes, with unimaginable love, you looked upon your creature within your very self, 
the Aquinas's divine ideas coming out in, in Catherine, you looked upon your creature within your very self and you fell in love with us. Stirred by the same fire that made you create us, you decided to give this warring human race a way to reconciliation. So God's knowledge of his own goodness, which he desires to be shared, is his motive for creation and his desire to restore the beauty of his creation is the motive for redemption. Of course, when Catherine describes God the Father, there's no pain in the perfect love of God, only the active power by which he reaches out to do good to his creatures. Um, when the human soul experiences a similar desire for God's glory, the human soul shares in the divine love, but in the painful way of one who does not yet fully possess God and who is still to an extent in solidarity with this sinful world. This love also parallels Christ's love. Catherine compares the experience of the soul in the unitive way to Christ's experience on the cross. She says that on the cross, Christ experienced the vision of God in the higher part of his intellect, although experiencing pain in his body and passions and soul. Now, Catherine is not claiming that the soul in the unitive way has the beatific vision or the direct vision of God. What she's claiming to, as a similarity is that there's a mixture of happiness or a mixture of knowledge and deep sorrow. Just as Christ on the cross, according to Catherine, knew that he was the divine son, so the soul, through some experience of the theological virtues and the gifts of the Holy Spirit within it, recognizes the grace of God within it, even while in great pain over the evil of the world. The soul maintains a stable joy from its loving knowledge of God, because according to Catherine, the delight of charity can never be taken away from them. To make this claim, it's likely that Catherine is explicitly drawing on Aquinas's theology. She probably didn't read Aquinas directly, but she listened to a lot of Dominican preaching and is clearly influenced by Aquinas's theology as mediated through the preaching of other Dominicans. Okay, that's Catherine. So now let's turn to <coughs> Teresa of Calcutta. So most people are fairly familiar with the background of Mother Teresa. She was an Albanian born in 1910. She entered the Sisters of Loreto, a teaching order, and went to India eventually to teach. In the 1940s, she experienced what she called her call within a call, this um, invitation by Christ to leave that teaching community and found the missionaries of charity to serve the poorest of the poor. Now, turning to the experience and thought of Mother Teresa after reading Catherine, several questions arise. These involve the place of darkness in the spiritual life and also its Christological significance. As I said, for Catherine, there's no darkness in the unitive way, this um, advanced stage of the spiritual life. On the contrary, Mother Teresa is famous for experiencing a very long period of darkness of faith at the end of her life. Mother Teresa saw her redemptive suffering with Christ in this darkness um, as her, her closest union and a union with Christ and something good for the salvation of the world. She came to understand this darkness as a, the spiritual side of her work of caring for the poor and not simply a stage to pass through. It seems that she reached this understanding with the help of her spiritual director. 
She remained in this spirit and also because she remained in the experience of darkness for almost all of the time between her founding the Missionaries of Charity in 1950 and her death in 1997. Now, there's a couple approaches taken by theologians who study Mother Teresa about towards her darkness, whether it should be considered as a manifestation of John of the Cross's dark night of the spirit in its normal place in spiritual development, a prelude to the unitive way, and this would say she reaches that, that deeper union with God just on her death or just before her death, um, or as something different and unique. Father Brian Kolodiechuk, editor of Mother Teresa, Come Be My Light, the private writings of the Saint of Calcutta, argues that Teresa had entered this unitive union with God before entering into her long darkness. Kolodiechuk understands a period of darkness or dryness that Teresa experienced earlier as a temporary professed sister around 1937 to be this night of the spirit. Um, in the year 1942, after she had made her final vows as a religious sister of Loretto, Teresa made a further vow never to refuse God anything. According to Father Kolodiechuk, this vow expresses the depth of the, her unitive way that she was already experiencing and positioned her to willingly accept a further call from God. Um, to support this, Kolodiechuk records instances when those who worked with Teresa during her later years as a sister of Loretto Marked, remarked on her unusually deep love of God. He quotes a sister as saying, she is utterly selfless, she's extraordinary in her sacrifice, she can do anything for the love of God, endure any humiliation or suffering. Um, and as a religious sister myself, the people who live with you in community usually have a pretty down-to-earth perspective on you and don't usually say exaggerated things about your goodness, so th th that does carry some weight. Teresa herself admits that at this point in her life, she had not been seeking self for some time now. And that this does echo Catherine's description of the soul at the third stage, the unitive way, who is completely dead to every selfish impulse. As further evidence that Teresa was firmly in the unitive stage as a preparation for her call to found the missionaries of charity, Kolodiechuk also cites visions and near ecstasy that she experienced at the time of the founding of the Missionaries of Charity. Um, insofar as he's convinced by the form of these experiences that Teresa is in the unitive way, he's not necessarily convincing. Vision, ecstasy, that this gifts, along with um, clear manifestation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, can belong to the, the illuminative way, that middle stage, according, both according to John of the Cross and Catherine of Siena. I mean, Catherine's visions began during her childhood. God can grant visions to anyone at any time, un, you know, unconnected to their actual holiness. And Catherine of Siena also characterizes the stage, the second stage, as a time of showings, growth in awareness of God's movement in one's life, growth in virtue. Um, However, the content of Teresa's visions do, does support Kolodiechuk's interpretations. In these visions, Jesus calls Teresa to a deeper share in his mission, suggesting that she already was experiencing a deep union with him. There's a sense of calling her deeper. Her central vision took place on September 10, 1946, which she called her Inspiration Day. 
She says that God called her to found the missionaries of charity, and this desire began in the depths of God's longing to love and to be loved. She saw it as a call to enter deeply into Christ's redemptive mission by satisfying the thirst of Christ. And the language she uses here echoes and works very well with Catherine's description of the soul in the unitive way, who has this deep hunger for the salvation of souls. And then continuing, a few years later, after Teresa began her new work, she entered into a new period of darkness, the one for which she's well known. Kolediechek understands this darkness to be like the classic night of the spirit in some ways, so similarities that everyone agrees on. It was a painful period of spiritual darkness. It was meant to be lived in faith. Teresa was, of course, didn't lose her faith. She still has this belief in God and a great love of God, just not the felt experience of God's closeness to her. Klodiechuk does mention that the period of darkness helped to make Mother Teresa kinder and more compassionate. He nevertheless wants to emphasize that in essence it's different from John's dark night because its main purpose is not purifying but reparative, reparative offering something with Christ. Firstly, not firstly purging and purifying and deepening Teresa's love. He describes it as an identification with those whom she served and as a sharing in Christ's pain, two aspects under which Teresa also came to see it. Of course, the second theological attitude that some take towards Teresa's dark night is just to simply say, no, this was a regular dark night of the spirit described by John in its regular place in the spiritual life, moving from the illuminative stage into the stage of deeper union with God. This understanding focuses on the similarities of John's description of the night of the spirit and Teresa's darkness. It would be, it would necessarily imply that Teresa is continuing to be purged of faults here, becoming more humble, loving, and kind during her years of darkness. The agreement that both of these viewpoints have is first, her darkness needs to be understood as a mystical suffering with Christ, not a depression or lack of faith, and two, it was fruitful for her mission. The second reading gives her an extended period of darkness, while the first reading gives her an extra one, but both of them emphasize that there was a fruitfulness for her work that came out of this suffering. Okay, let's bring them together now. So Catherine's insight into the personal way in which God deals with each soul does help to illuminate Teresa's experience. The dark night, according to John of the Cross, will have its duration as long as impurities in the soul's faith render the infused contemplation of the mystery of God an experience of darkness. A person will come out of the dark night, according to John, when they're purified. Sort of, it's a little bit of a feeling of sort of a process. Process goes on, when you finish it, you're done. Catherine emphasizes a little bit more God's freedom in dealing with each soul. Um, which suggests or opens the possibility that God could choose to keep even a purified soul in the darkness if there was a reason to do so. Because God's being is always infinitely greater than the knowledge, capacity, or love of any creature, there would be no untruth in a soul's experience of God as darkness at any spiritual stage in this life, no matter how pure the faith and love of that soul was. 
God could always be present to the soul as surpassing its knowledge and ungraspable. This insight is compatible with God's theology. It's made plausible by Catherine's language and seems to be verified by Teresa's experience. A second point of connection, right? Catherine speaks of knowing, Teresa speaks of darkness, but they both agree that what's of value is the faithful love which underlies their suffering, right? Charity as a principle of merit. Catherine's knowledge bears fruit because of the love it brings forth in her. In a parallel way, Teresa describes the deep rootedness of her will in God during her darkness, despite her absence of glowing feeling and mystical insights. She writes, I have his darkness, I have his pain, but I know I still have Jesus. In that unbroken union, my mind is fixed on him, and in him alone is my will. Her mind is fixed on him as a result of supernatural faith. Her will is fixed on him as a result of supernatural charity, her darkness only increasing this charity in her life. Okay, now I want to turn to the question of Christology. As mentioned, Catherine understood the suffering of those in the unitive way to mirror that of Christ on the cross. In contrast, in one sense, following the teaching of her spiritual director, Father Neuner, Teresa also came to understand her suffering of darkness as a small part of Jesus' darkness and pain on earth. She even taught her sisters to link darkness in the spiritual life with Christ's experience. She wrote to them, Jesus wanted to help us by sharing our life, our loneliness, our agony, and our death. All this he has taken upon himself, and he has carried it in the darkest night. One could ask then, does Teresa's emphasis on darkness require a Christology different from that of Catherine's on any point? Now one sort of easy answer would be in the affirmative. It would say, Christ called to Catherine out of light in deference to her Dominican formation. She could only receive and handle an account of Christ that fits with Aquinas' teaching that had led her to believe that Christ had the beatific vision on the cross. Similarly, he spoke to Teresa out of darkness in affirmation of more modern Christologies, thinking Luther or von Balthasar here, which suggests that Christ's experience on the cross was an experience of total abandonment to the Father and this was necessary for the redemption of humanity. Now, of course, the difficulty with this approach is the implicit separation between metaphysics or ontology and experience. It implies that the experience of the saints changes completely in response to changing culture and theology, rather than being grounded in an experience of the realities that theology describes. Now, I don't want to deny that any sort of human experience has subjective elements in that it's experienced by a human subject and interpreted according to her own background. But this legitimate variation, I think, needs to be centered and normed by the realities revealed. If revelation is true, there must be some unvarying essential content irrespective of differing experience. Okay. So I'd like to continue to argue that, distinct as they are, both Catherine and Teresa's claims about the mystical experience of suffering with Christ do fit within a unified Christology. Now, of course, a first just simple shared insight is that all human experience can be legitimately understood as a sharing in Christ's suffering. 
No matter what Christ actually himself experienced on the cross, he died for the purpose of impacting, affecting, and taking away all the sins of the world and to heal all of these sins. So any experience of the effects of sin can in some way be linked to Christ's suffering and carrying of the burden of sin. Now, to reach a more satisfying solution, to look at how we could perhaps say the suffering of each of these women participates in Christ's suffering on the cross, I want to look at Aquinas' Christology. So first, how Aquinas' Christology fits with Catherine. Aquinas' teaching on the knowledge and suffering of Christ helps to give insight into Catherine's understanding that suffering can come from knowledge rather than from darkness. In the third part of his Summa, question 6, article 6, Aquinas asks whether Christ's sufferings were the greatest sufferings ever endured by anyone. The objections that Aquinas poses include questions about whether the virtuous order of Christ's emotions would have mitigated his pain, objection 2, and whether the fact that Christ only lost bodily life would make him suffer less than a sinner who not only loses their bodily life or has that possibility, but has lost the greater reality of God's grace. So what, it, what is helpful in Aquinas here is his discussion of the role of Christ's knowledge in increasing Christ's suffering. So as I've mentioned, Aquinas taught not only that Christ had the vision of God during his earthly life, he also had infused knowledge of all those things pertaining to his mission, and of course, naturally acquired sense and intellectual knowledge as well. In his reply to the second objection, Aquinas notes that being virtuous would not have lessened Christ's suffering, since moral virtue orders the passions to be in a proper proportion to their objects. Since Christ was sorrowing over all the sins ever committed, an appropriately ordered sadness would be surpassingly great. Aquinas says that Christ took on a sadness absolutely greatest in quantity, but nevertheless did not exceed the rule of reason. Now for Christ's sorrow over the sins of the world to be proportioned to the rule of reason, he would need to possess some knowledge of the sins he was bearing. We could say that his sadness would result from his infused knowledge of sin, his union with sinners through his shared human nature and vocation as redeemer, his rightly ordered will, his knowledge of the goodness of God. In reply to the fourth objection, Aquinas explains, also referring to Christ's knowledge, Christ did not sorrow only over the loss of his own bodily life, but he also sorrowed for the sins of all others. This sorrow in Christ surpassed the sorrow of any other grief because it came forth from a greater wisdom and love, both of which increased the sorrow of grief, and also because he sorrowed at once for all sins. So, Christ's suffering here was brought about by his knowledge of the sins of humanity, by his wisdom by which he judges them rightly, and by his charity in which his will detested them, both out of love of the Father and love of sinners. Since Christ's knowledge and love surpasses all others, his suffering does as well. You can see how this then fits Catherine's pattern and description. She did at times in her experience seem to have a prophetic insight into the evil of sin. Her love and openness to the Holy Spirit made her sensitive to the daily evils that she encountered. 
Her emotions and will endured great sadness and sorrow at the recognition of the evil of sin and the damage it does to the human person. So in this way, her suffering parallels Christ's and is a sharing in his suffering. Although, of course, Catherine doesn't claim to have the beatific vision, just whatever prophetic insight she has into God's goodness and the evil of sin. All right, now let's look at Teresa. This one's a little little more difficult, a little bit less obvious. So Teresa's darkness, when viewed through Aquinas' Christology, shows a complementary sharing in Christ's experience. Now, according to Aquinas, Christ on the cross never lost the direct vision of God. In it, he knew himself to be the beloved son of the Father and knew that his death was a meaningful offering for the sins of the world. We're looking at Summa Theologia, third part, question 46, articles 6 and 7 here. This knowledge would have provided the grounding for Christ's obedient love, which pleased the Father and made his sacrifice meritorious. Nevertheless, Aquinas says, Christ's direct knowledge of God did not overflow his higher faculties in such a way as to diminish either his physical pain or his sorrow at the insults offered to him. Aquinas suggests that one of the reasons why Christ's suffering surpasses all others is because he could stop the considerations of his higher reason from lessening his pain. So he doesn't, while other people would be, you could be distracted by, from pain or sorrow by thinking about something else, Christ consciously chooses to, to sever this and not allow any higher thought or reflection take away from his reaction and sorrow at the insult of his passion and the sins of the world. This would mean that Christ took no emotional comfort in his knowledge of God, a severance of knowledge and emotion that was not present in Catherine of Siena. Looking at Teresa, we could say, Christ sh Teresa shared Christ's lack of emotional comfort, not, of course, because of a similar block between clear knowledge and emotion, but because of the darkness of her faith. She had faith, but she didn't have clear knowledge. She shared Christ's feeling of desolation because of the darkness of her faith in a way that Catherine could not. Christ's direct knowledge of God, his beatific vision, seems to have played a role in his consciousness parallel to that of Teresa's unshaken faith. It was foundational for love and grounding of identity. As quoted above, Teresa says, I have his darkness, I have his pain, my mind is fixed on him and him alone. Even in her darkness, Teresa's faith gave her certainty that Christ was with her. She experienced his upholding her as the cause of her anguished desire for him. Her faith rendered her able to understand the value of the suffering of her life and her service as a missionary of charity. Therefore, although different in mode, Teresa's faith was parallel to Christ's divine knowledge, his beatific vision, in that it grounded her will but did not enliven her emotions. Aquinas understood the unmitigated emotional pain of Christ on the cross as a bearing of the sorrows of all men. He writes that Christ experienced all the types of suffering it's possible to endure, at least in their general categories. Teresa also understood her suffering as a sharing in the suffering of those whom she served. Her identification with the poor began in her way of living, and in a sense, God ratified and deepened it by giving her their darkness. 
Teresa suffering imitated Christ thus in her bearing of the sufferings of those to whom she was sent. Now, just to turn to one other source before concluding here, John Paul II's Mariology, in an interesting way, supports the description of darkness as a participation in the suffering of Christ, who knows the Father. John Paul II now consistently follows Thomas's teaching that Christ had the direct vision of God even while on the cross. But even while holding this, John Paul does speak of Mary as sharing in Christ's suffering through a type of darkness. In his encyclical Redemptoris Mater, he describes her night of faith. He says Mary had a particular heaviness of heart linked with a sort of night of faith, to use the words of John, so he connects Mary's sorrow at the cross to John's night of faith, a kind of veil through which one has to draw near to the invisible one and live in intimacy with this mystery. He continues, at the foot of the cross, Mary experienced the complete negation of the words the angels had spoken to her. Through this faith, Mary is perfectly united with Christ in his self-emptying. These words of John Paul shed light on Teresa's darkness. First, they describe Mary in darkness as sharing in Christ's self-emptying, even though Mary's suffering is a suffering of dark faith. And for John Paul II, Christ's suffering is one which always involves the clear knowledge of his divinity through the beatific vision. Secondly, they, they describe an experience of darkness which was not purifying. Mary, of course, could grow in love, but because of her immaculate conception, she had no sinful defects of soul from which to be purged. Her suffering was that of the new Eve, offering the fruits of love, sorrowing in union with Christ for the redemption of the world. So John Paul II's description of Mary is well mirrored in the life of Teresa of Calcutta. And Teresa of Calcutta herself identified her vocation as Marian, saying, let us always remain with Mary, our mother on Calvary, near the crucified Jesus. So in a sense, perhaps Teresa of Calcutta would have made this theological question easier if she had described sharing in Mary's darkness rather than Christ's darkness. Um, so I would suggest then, to conclude, that the key to understanding the Christology underlying the mystical suffering of Catherine and Teresa involves making a careful distinction between Christ's uniqueness as a God-man and the way in which Christians share in his redemption. Although the experience of no believer, not even that of his mother, can reproduce Christ's experience exactly, nevertheless, all in some way share in the love and suffering of a God who takes on all human mis misery. The wider question of mystical experience in general directs our attention to the flexibility with which God interacts with each soul. Although there do seem to be characteristic stages to spiritual growth, and knowing them can equip and encourage us for the journey, as we see, God reveals to each person a somewhat unique path, a path ordered to reflect the characteristics of the individual, possibly the age in which she or, she or she lives, and the age to which the lives of the saints are meant to speak. Catherine's luminous desire perfectly fits the age of faith in which she lives, a time in which God's truths were known to those around her, but often ignored in practice, and in which charity was, in many cases, cold. 
Her thirst reflects the state of the church during her life, a mother yearning for her believing but unfaithful children. Perhaps Teresa's darkness better fits our age, enveloped by unbelief, and in which, for many, the darkness of suffering obscures the face of God. Thank you for listening to the Center for Thomistic Studies podcast. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, and leave a five-star review, which helps others discover the show. The Center for Thomistic Studies is based at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, and it is the only graduate philosophy program in the United States uniquely focused on the thought of St. Thomas. If you are interested in future talks and events at the Center, please like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Studies to receive regular updates and news. For more information about the Center, please visit us online at stthom.edu slash cts. That's s-t-t-h-o-m.edu slash cts.